You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Wendy Holden back on the show with me today. She has an amazing new book. It's called The Duchess, and what a phenomenal book this is. If you if you loved uh, Wendy's book from last year when she was on the show, you're going to love this one. The Governess was such a great book, and now The Duchess is uh, it, it is now available. We can hold it in our hands. You're, if you love those uh, books, you're going to love this one. Welcome back to the show, Wendy. Thank you so much, Hank, and thank you for being so kind about The Duchess. I'm so pleased that you enjoyed it. Oh, it's such a fantastic book. Um, how uh, how's your how's your year been since we spoke last time? Oh gosh, well, a bit a bit on the kind of confined side, I expect like everybody's. <laughs> it's uh, it's been. I mean, it, it's nothing much happened until I can't really remember when it all started to open up. Um, but most of the time, I was writing The Duchess. It was lockdown. I think it sort of started to come out, everyone started to come out of their holes in about June, July here in Britain. But it's been a bit tricky. And of course, it's um, it's still, you know, very bumpy, as, as of course it is for you. So, yeah, not not be the best of years. I won't be sad to see the back of it, I have to say. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's an interesting thing, Wendy, because uh, I've talked to lots of writers who, um, you know, writers are, are sort of solitary folk um, sure. that, that spend a lot of their time, uh, you know, in in an office, uh, you know, with their computer or notepad or whatever it is. And mm-hmm. um, without a lot of external communication, shall we say, or, you yeah. know, there, there are periods uh, of that uh, time, you know, in a writer's life where you know, you seem to be kind of sequestered away. Um, what's interesting is the rest of the world has been experiencing what what writers exactly. get to experience a lot. Um, so, you know, where being locked up hasn't affected or, or you wouldn't think would affect writers a whole lot because they're used to that anyway. But, you know, what about the psychological aspects of, you know, yeah, the rest I mean, of the world? It's, yeah. it's, it's kind it's of an kind interesting of turn of events. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's it's there's two things I'd like to say in res- response to that. First of all, that's a really terrifying thought. All those people sitting at home who aren't used to it, but they're probably all written amazing novels that are now going to flood the market. But, <laughs> and secondly, yes, absolutely. I'm used to spending time on my own, and that's how I normally work. I normally work in a kind of state of lockdown more or less all the time. But what was different was. Um, the fact that the children were at home, my children were at home most of the year, and and that made it really difficult because uh, I had to you know do all the sort of looking after them <laughs> and be at home and and sort of uh, be around where normally I'm 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 able to work. So that was a, a bit of a challenge, but you know it's there were upsides to that too because we spent a lot of time together that we otherwise wouldn't have done. So you know there, there's both sides to it, but it definitely wasn't the most conducive. Uh, situation to to write a novel although it did mean that when I did get away um, to continue writing The Duchess it was uh, brilliant to be able to dive into the crazy 1920s and 30s and escape from the crazy 2020s. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Um, if I remember right, Wendy, when we talked last time, um, I began with the with the question that I ask all new writers that are or, or people that I'm just meeting for the first time on the show, um, you know, a, about your first memory of wanting to be a writer. And if I remember right, you told me this great story of your love of Enid Blyton when you were young oh, yeah. mm -hmm. and and how she had this way of talking about the characters that, you know, just kind of behind behind yeah. her eyes. They're always there, and exactly. she just had to connect with them. Um, yeah. You know, you have published uh, one or two books in your in your life. Um, Ooh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look, yeah. This is like your 20th book. That was, there were two things about her book, actually. Um, even though I have no idea where this book came from or, or how it came into our house. It was quite an old book when I was a kid, and which is kind of like, you know, God, I mean, I wouldn't like to say how long ago it was that I first came across it, but um, it was a book from the 1950s. It was um, a big sort of old red book with um, big floppy cardboard covers. And, and yes, it was her autobiography. And she, there were two things that really struck me. First of all, the photographs of her completely amazing life. I mean, she had this, fantastic house beautiful house and we had some sort of tennis courts and horses and huge gardens and and I just thought wow that's what it's like you know being an author and she also uh described the process for her which she said was basically sitting in a chair in the garden in this beautiful garden closing her eyes and all her characters would appear behind her eyelids like sort of characters in a, on a movie screen and then all she had to do was write down what they said and did and I thought wow this is brilliant this is really easy but of course when I started doing it I realized myself I realized that she was not entirely telling the truth <laughs> because it's not quite that easy <laughs> although I'm, I'm not saying it's the hardest job in the world far from it but it's um it definitely wasn't as simple as um Enid made it out to be <laughs> which which I, I don't know makes us love her even more that she can yeah. get away with telling a story like I don't no, know absolutely. well I'm glad to hear you say that because she she gets she comes in for a certain amount of um of condemnation and criticism in the UK with people sort of she's 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 I think she's kind of she's always been cancelled for, for various things I think she's been cancelled again kind of recently but I I just love I just used to love her books I loved her school stories and so did my kids who were much um you know even in the sort of you know 10 or so years ago my kids were lapping up the um Mallory Towers books and you know they're modern kids so I think there's definitely something that appeals to everybody really yeah Absolutely. Absolutely. With uh, with your book that we talked about um, last year and uh, with the the governess and now the duchess that's coming out um, or that's out now when when people are hearing the show, um, you, you've had um, a bit of a of a turn in your writing career. You you uh, have written quite a number of uh of comic novels of, of funny uh mm -hmm. kind of rom-com novels if you want to yeah. look at it that way and then you had the laura lake uh novels that you published mm -hmm. um which um you know kind of fit in in one genre and now you've with the the governess and the duchess we're kind of firmly in the historical fiction sure. uh, yes. and and there's been it, it seems like you've shifted gears a little bit what, Absolutely. What was it? Oh, completely. yeah I I, I, um, I I think I always wanted to write historical novels I mean right from the beginning really but I, I sort of started writing um, comic novels and I really enjoyed it and I was very successful at it for for a long time but um, 
this urge to write something historical uh, never really went away. And, and I knew even before The Crown uh, was broadcast that I wanted to write some fiction about, about the Windsors, about the, the, the royal, British royal family, because I could see that they were like characters in a the novel. They were, they were such huge personalities. They're so different from each other and the storylines affecting them are so um, various. They're so dramatic. They're so funny sometimes and so awful other times and so unbelievable generally that it, they're just kind of tailor-made for fiction. And I knew that I, I wanted to write about them, but I could never find the right way in. And it wasn't until I found Marion Crawford's story, The Little Princesses, which became The Governess, which became my novel last year, The Governess, that I... I found the way in. And, and after that, I decided that I would write historical novels because I finally found what, what I wanted. So and also, um, you know, I was getting sort of middle aged, really. And I just you know, the, the sort of rom com genre. I mean, it's sort of OK for maybe it's a younger person's type of book to write. You know, I, I just found myself getting more drawn towards these historical dramas that I that I wanted to to, to write. So that's they call it a pivot. As, you, as I'm sure you know, in sure. the industry. And so I pivoted from um, comic fiction to historical novels. But that's not to say that there isn't actually a certain amount of comedy in what I'm writing at the moment. I mean, I don't write them as comedies, obviously, but I think the higher the stakes in any situation, and particularly when it comes to royalty, where there's such an enormous gap between the public facade and the private person. The possibilities and potential for slip-ups, for farce, for you know all, all kinds of amusing things to happen um, in, in order to, to bridge that gap between the public and the private. Um, I've come across lots of sort of amazing stories and amusing stories that sort of inform these and humanise these, these great historical dramas that we all know about. And actually... Wallace Simpson is a really good example of that because she was a really funny person. She was a really warm person. She she was, you know, very easygoing, uh, very different character. I discovered in my research from the person who everybody thinks they know this, um, you know, very uh, I mean, in Britain in particular, she's characterized as someone who is very calculating, very ambitious, very um, materialistic and, you know, uh, and of course, you know, um, is is, is uh, credited with um, taking Edward VIII away from the royal family and from Britain and from the throne. So she gets a really bad rap. And one of the things I wanted to do is show her as 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 the person I saw her as, which is a completely different character. And in fact, it was the character I came across when I was researching her. You know, her autobiography. Is, is full of, of humour, particularly when she talks about her early years in London. You know, she's very funny about the fact that she can't understand what Cockney people are saying. And she's very funny when she talks about how they used to treat her in the shops. They thought that she was a kind of stupid woman who didn't know what she wanted. But then she would produce her Fanny Farmer cookbook from the depths of her basket and she would make the butcher give her exactly the cut she wanted. And she was nobody's fool. So she was just a kind of really feisty brave woman I thought you know starting a new life in a in a an alien city where nobody was very nice to her and so I I became drawn to to this this story and how did a woman who knew nobody who had no you know she had no friends she had no money the only person she really knew was Ernest he was he was nice but he wasn't wealthy he wasn't well connected you know they were they were he she and he was very busy with his shipping um, empire. Well, it wasn't an empire; it was just his shipping business, which was not doing very well. Wallace was left all by herself 
she was very lonely, you know, it was a lonely life. So I became interested in how a woman in this situation became this notorious creature who was the dazzling favourite of the most eligible man on the planet. So that's what the Duchess is about, tracing that journey. And the Wallace I've, I've uncovered is a really different character from, from this um, unpleasant person that uh, that she's always presented as. So that was, uh, you know, I think I've broken new ground with her, really. I mean, fictionally, anyway. I mean, I think there've been auto, there've been biographies, and certainly her own autobiography, which makes that case. But um, this is the first fictional version of her, which presents her in a really positive light. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20 or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. What Death Taught Tarrant by Derek McFadden. Life is a journey. So is the afterlife. At the end of his life, Terrence McDonald must discover its meaning or he'll be banned from the afterlife forever and his soul will cease to exist. Join Terrence and those who love him on a poignant and unforgettable journey through a life at once wonderful and harrowing. Learn what Terrence learned. See what Terrence sees. By this provocative story's end, readers may even learn a thing or two about themselves. See why people are saying things like, Derek McFadden writes with an insight you can match. If you like the works of Mitch Album, I think you'll find What Death Taught Terrence a worthy addition to your library and the reading of it, a life-affirming journey. I found this story immediately immersive and it stuck with me long after I finished. What Death Taught Terrence by Derek McFadden on sale now. It, it's so fascinating because you you use the the term uh, humanizing when you're when you're talking about um, 
uh, humor in in you know serious fiction because um, because as humans that that is an that is an integral part of of who we are is the the ability to find um, humorous elements in in everyday life um, and and that's kind of become a hallmark of your historical fiction is finding these humanizing elements. I mean, in the royal governess, we're talking about mm-hmm. Queen Elizabeth as a child, and mm-hmm. you know what's more humanizing than showing kind of what makes the person. And yeah. you've you've done that uh, in in the same way. Well, I mean, in a in a different light, but you've done kind of the same work with the Duchess to to humanize this mm. uh this character that i mean we we don't even think of wallace as a as a person anymore mm. she's a character in this sure. in this grand drama that we see yeah. unfolding on the world yeah. stage yeah. um what what sort of things did you look for um in in humanizing wallace to to make her a real three-dimensional person with the same struggles, the same loves, the mm-hmm. same wants and desires. And, yeah. you know, what what, yeah. what sort of t- yes. touch points do you look for when yeah, you're well, trying well, to humanize a character? Well, with Wallace, um, it wasn't difficult because she describes in, in, in her, she's, she wrote an autobiography in the 50s. And with the amazing title of The Heart Has Its Reasons, which is kind of slightly cryptic and, and slightly, <laughs> slightly crazy title. And um, but she describes her life and, and her early life, which was pretty difficult. She had a, a really tough childhood with her, her mother was was a sort of peripatetic and impulsive character who sort of moved around a lot. And, and Wallace was very had a very insecure childhood. They were very close. Um, but she, she, there was not a lot of money, and she was very, you know, no, never really sure where she'd be living, sort of one month to the next. And then she made an absolutely disastrous marriage to a um, navy pilot who turned out to be sort of um, violent alcoholic, and really she had the most awful time with him. And and that was the first divorce. So when I got to as, as far as that, I was already thinking, well, hang on a minute, you know, th- th- this is a these are terrible experiences. So for a start, I could see that she'd, you know, that, that you didn't have to try very hard to humanise someone who'd been through that. So and that was before she even came to Britain and had a, a really rough time trying to fit in in London and being cold shouldered by these snotty British who didn't want to include her in or invite her to things because she was, you know, divorced, foreign and obscure. You know, so she had to face quite a lot of difficulty, but she was always resilient about it and she was always brave and she was always humorous and graceful and made the best of things. And there's a sort of spirit to her that came through all these situations, a sort of a spirit of endurance, a, a sort of optimism, which I would characterise and certainly Edward VIII um, and obviously the Prince of Wales as he was when he met her, characterised as American, completely as, as an American spirit, because she, the, her Americanness and the fact she was American was absolutely crucial um, for him, because he uh, he completely adored the states, he completely loved it. He Edward VIII was mad about America, and one of the reasons um, was that his father was not interested in it. His father Edward George V, I don't think he ever went out of Britain. He used to go to Bognor Regis, this sort of boring um, seaside resort on the south coast, but that was pretty much it, and up to Scotland. But really, rather prided himself on never leaving the country. So for Edward, for his son. Um, America was the opposite. It was new. It was uh, it was modern. It was 
um, fashionable, it was fun, it was jazzy, it was inventive, it was irreverent, it wasn't, it was a republic, crucially, because um, he wasn't, despite the fact he was the Prince of Wales, he wasn't really very keen at all on on being king. So her Americanness and her sort of, she had a, a sort of easy way with her, and it wasn't that she was in any way rude, she wasn't in any way um, sort of disrespectful, but she had a sort of um, ease of manner. Well, her manners were perfect, but there was an ease about her. And she wasn't sycophantic. She didn't fawn over him. And she also um, encouraged him in in something that was terribly important to him, which is the idea of modernising the monarchy. He felt that it was completely out of touch and ridiculously stuffy and, and absolutely remote in a kind of Victorian way. And he wanted to make it kind of relatable to um to the people and she encouraged him with this and he was she was the only person who did everybody else thought he was completely mad and and I actually wonder if they weren't right because I think one of the great problems you you always come across in anybody trying to modernize the monarchy it finds that it really isn't modernizable (laughs) actually but the struggle is 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 quite um interesting and the the attempts to make it uh, relatable and the attempts to update it are always really interesting, but they always fail. And in fact, all my three, I'm I'm writing another novel on the same subject, which I suppose we'll come to, but all my novels so far on on, on this theme, um, The World Governess and The Duchess, have been about women who came from a different way of life, from a different place into the royal family and tried to shake it up, tried to make a difference, tried to modernise it. And, and it always was an absolute disaster, personal disaster for them. Although in all the, those cases, the Windsors benefited in, in, in the in sense of the, in the role governess, for example, um, Marion Crawford, um, her attempts to introduce the Queen to uh, normal life and, you know, take her shopping, take her swimming, um, take her on the tube, all this stuff um, has arguably help make the queen this relatable figure she is now that early experience and of course wallace's um introduction in, into the royal family was a kind of it was a bomb and 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 it, and it blew edward off the throne and of course the person who replaced him was george the sixth and who is the father of the queen and she's you know universally agreed to be you know the, the world's most you know, successful and certainly the most enduring monarchs. So the Windsors always benefit from these efforts to update them, but the, the updaters always have a really hard time. So it's an interesting um, area to look into. But yeah, but back to your question, that that was um, that it wasn't hard to humanise Wallace because there's a lot human about her story. There's a lot that's very moving. You you really, I really felt for this this child that she she'd been. Um, she went to Baltimore's second best school. It's a bit like something out of it's about like Shakespeare in his second best bed. He went to the second best school and and she was surrounded by all these wealthy girls and she had no money herself and they didn't invite her to parties and you know he doesn't. He doesn't feel sorry for a child in that situation. And and then, you know, this awful husband, this the, the beaten wife, she was only 19. You know, it's just a terrible story. And so she, when she finally found Ernest, he was a port in a storm. But again, the port that he brought her to uh, in London was um, was an alien and, and um, in an unfriendly place. So she suffered, you know, she had a difficult time, but she came through and, and she became this, this, you know, the world's most famous um american probably so i think it's uh, it's it's uh, it's a great story so you know there's, there was a lot to go at but it wasn't hard to find what what made her a human being
how do you when when you've defined um what your topic is going to be or who your is going to be the the focus of the story that you're going to tell when when you're dealing with people um that have sort of been institutionalized uh, or made an institution of is, mm-hmm. is probably a, a better way of saying that um like the queen or you mm-hmm. know someone that is attached to the royal family like like wallace is um how do you go about finding reliable sources that let you tell um that, that can you know give you the background uh that's not kind of the um uh the story that's been set in stone how do you Uh, find these interesting facts uh, with uh, about people that are you know that everything is is so closely guarded sure well um in the case of uh the governess the royal governess i was using one of my main sources was marion crawford's um own autobiography the little princesses so that was a really good source but i was also able to most of the incidents um, that are described in, 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 the, in the autobiographies that I use are recorded elsewhere from other different points of view. So you can see the same incident from um, all kinds of different perspectives and you get a pretty good idea of, of what you think really happened. But in the case of Wallace, there was there's plenty of primary sources, I mean, for, which, which haven't, weren't always available. So, for example, in the 80s, um, a cache of letters, the letters that um, the, the, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor wrote to each other from the 1930s onwards um, was published. And that was a really, really useful source for me because it, it showed the kind of person that I thought she was, the kind of person who didn't want him to abdicate, that wasn't calculating, that didn't realise until far too late that this is what was going to happen. So that was a really good a good source of of um, material. But there's there's quite a lot about her. Some goods. I mean, that some people people are all, the thing about Wallace Simpson is everyone's got a point of view, and so even um, histories that are supposed to be that that's set out to be you know even handed always take sides, and most people are very critical of her. And I kind of felt that. It, that she she's always taken all the blame for what happened and I don't think actually it was her fault at all and the more I looked into her story that the more um, convinced I became of this and it began really I mean her whole the whole book the whole uh, story of the Duchess began when I was writing the governess the royal governess because um, it she pops into that story um, kind of about halfway through and she was going to be just a kind of scene it was going to be just one little scene but and what was going to what happened was um marion crawford goes to balmoral with the little princesses it's a a summer holiday and she meets wallace simpson when she's out walking and wallace has just come to scotland she's been summoned by the king by edward the eighth he's at balmoral at the castle and she's come to she so she came to and this really happened she arrived at Aberdeen railway station and she was met by the king the king picked her up took her to the castle but at the point in the story when Marion Crawford meets her Wallace is very angry and upset and she's angry and upset because what subsequently happened after the king picked her up was this absolutely massive row that broke out in in the local Scottish press Set, um, about the fact that the king was supposed to have opened a hospital and had and had um, blown them out, so he'd go and pick up Wallace from the station, 
Um, and they, the, the hospital didn't know that he, he that's what he was doing, but he was photographed at the station. So they put two and two together and they thought, oh, well, great. You know, he was supposed to be in this hospital and he's gone to meet his mistress. Well, what kind of a king is that? And it's all her fault. And so she had she she had to, to deal with this. And when I was sort of thinking about it and, and writing the scene, it struck me that Wallace Simpson would have had absolutely no idea that he was supposed to be opening a hospital. She would have arrived at the station, he would have been there, they'd have got in the car, and that would have been that. And it was only when she saw the papers that she would have realised what, what he'd done and, and, and that she was taking the blame. And from that small incident, although it was fa a fairly big one for, for Scotland and, and they were furious, the, the, the Scots really never go over it, um, I thought, well, hang on a minute, what else has Wallace got blamed for? that she didn't that wasn't actually her fault and that led me through a series of, of, of events large and small inevitably towards the big thing that she always got blamed for the abdication and I began to wonder well did that was that really her fault was that really because she wanted to be queen or she wanted to marry him or all the things that you know she's always blamed for and and I looked into the story, the more I looked into what, because it was a really weird um, event. The abdication was a really, really strange thing, not just because it was a king leaving his throne. It was more the, the circumstances surrounding it were completely bizarre. And they're very, very, very complicated. So you have to read it a lot and go over the same events a lot before you get a clear idea of what, what was going on. And the one thing that I could never understand even no matter how many times I read it about it was why Edward insisted on marrying Wallace before he was crowned I mean that was the, one of the major sticking points he insisted the application happened in December 1936 and the coronation um, was scheduled for May 1937 and so if it sort of hung on another few months and being crowned, it would have been this kind of multimedia spectacular. It would have been the biggest thing that ever happened. It would have had billions of people listening in, you know, all over the world on the radio, obviously, because it wasn't telly then. Um, it would have, well, there would have been films, news films. It would have been the biggest thing ever. And he would have been so insanely popular that he could have done anything. And he would certainly have been able to marry her after that. But he didn't. He didn't hang on. And I just couldn't understand that. And then it wasn't until I started to think, oh, hang on. He 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 wanted he wanted to leave the throne and he used her. He, she was part of his 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 get out. And part of his attraction, her attraction for him was the fact that she was so wrong. You know, she was the worst possible choice as 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 a wife because she was divorced, which was the main sticking point because the Church of England um, of which he was head, did not um, allow divorce. So that was out of the question. She was a divorced woman. She was, you know, not an aristocrat. She was foreign, all those things. But mainly she was a divorcee. He had, he was absolutely determined to marry her, uh, even though all the, everybody, the, the, the state, the governments, the colonies, everybody was saying no. So I thought when I started to think of it as something that he wanted to do and that he was using her in order to facilitate it, it all completely made sense. And I do actually think that that's what happened. I think that he intended, he insisted on marrying Wallace so he wouldn't have to be king. And he knew he'd be a rubbish king and he wanted to abdicate and she didn't make him. He wanted to do it. And I don't think she realised until it was far too late that that's what he intended. 
so yeah that all began with a kind of trip to a railway station <laughs> so yeah I think she was you know and it must have been a horrible moment and I and it was great fun to write it in the Duchess this dramatic moment when she thought oh oh but oh but this is this is all a plan and I'm stuck <laughs> Well, you know, with with bringing all of that to light, um, do do you think that that people will um, will think of Wallace in in a different light now? Um, I that, really hope that... so. Yeah, I really hope so because I think she deserves to be thought of in a different light. I mean, I, th- I think it's it's she's been treated so badly by history. She's always been written up as this, as a villain of the piece. And I don't think she was the villain of the piece. I think Edward was the villain of the piece, although I think he did it for good reasons. I think he actually genuinely thought it was a good idea to make way for his brother. And I think he and, and he was right. I mean, his brother was a good king. And, and of course, the queen, is, as I said, is a, is a great queen. So it was the right thing to do. But of course, all they've ever got was just totally, um, you know, d- just been completely uh, vilified and, and, and criticised and, and the worst criticism in the world, really, in, 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 in some cases. So I think it's it's all they, they've been very badly treated by history but you know it's 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 fun to to write about somebody with about who people have got such strong views and and challenge them and and invite them to look at her in a different light uh, you know so um that's been fun it's been fun to 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 break new ground well with the duchess be prepared to to have everything that you thought you knew um <laughs> questioned and and turned on its head uh, Wendy, I love the new book. We're going to send everyone to pick up a copy of The Duchess. Um, what Thank are you, you working on now? Because I know that there's ah. another story brewing uh, that, yeah, that you are going to. Yeah, another story brewing, Hank. Totally, yes. Another story brewing. It's my third. I'm thinking of these, these as a trilogy. They're sort of um, troublesome women in the House of Windsor, I suppose you could call it. And <laughs> I love so. It. Yeah, so so it's uh, my third my third story is is a, is a similar trajectory. It's somebody who came from outside, um, although slightly more aristocratic than um, than Wallace or Marion Crawford. Someone who came from outside, who came into the royal family, um, who thought it was one thing and found it was something else completely, and we're still living with the cataclysmic results of 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 that um situation so you know you've now got to guess which woman it was hank <laughs> i love it i love it i can't wait to it? see what's coming next it's princess diana i have to tell oh, you oh that's gonna be amazing that's gonna be it's, amazing it's the early years of princess diana what made her what where did she come from what shaped her why did she want to marry into the royal family all those things so um yeah so it's a really interesting story to research and i'm and i'm and i'm in the middle of it now well, and and knowing you, uh, you are going to make us uh, view the story that we all think that we know so well um, in a new way. And I can't wait oh, to see yeah. what's coming. Um, thank you. Thank you, Hank. Well, I look forward to talking to you about it when it comes out. Abs- absolutely. And um, Wendy, if, if people are just discovering you, tell them where they can find you online to dig into all the great yeah. stuff that you do. Thank you. Thank you, Hank. You're being so kind to me. It's just lovely. Well, I've got a website called it's wendyholden.net. And if you go to that website, you'll find all my connections to Facebook, to Instagram, to Twitter, everything. So and and all the information about my books and me. So, um, yeah, that's wendyholden.net. Fantastic. We'll link that up in the show notes of this episode. Go grab The Duchess today. Uh, When you're hearing this, it's available everywhere. Uh, Wendy, thank you so much for taking time to come back on the show. Oh, thank you, Frank. Sorry, Sir Hanks. Sorry, Hanks. <laughs>
Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Glebe's The Jason Crane Series. Natalie? It's Artie. Listen, I'm going to be late for dinner. I ran out of gas on... He climbed out of the car and peered at the sign. On Sleepy Hollow Road? There's nothing but trees and I have to find a gas station. Save me a drumstick. He hung up his cell and stuck it in his pocket, zipping his jacket. He was going to have to walk and pray somebody picked him up. A sliver of crescent moon hung above, surrounded by clouds, like a grinning drunk asleep in a puddle. Artie walked, using his tablet as a flashlight, eyes on the gravel ahead. He crossed over a dark ravine. The trunks and overhanging branches were matted thick with wild grapevines and threw a cavernous gloom over the road. A figure stood at a crossroads ahead. It looked pale and wan and blue. A woman? He had an impression of fragility and age and thought of his warty old landlady. But his landlady would not be standing at a crossroads in the dark. Excuse me? Artie said, surprised by the fear in his own voice. Do you know where I can find a gas station? I'm... I'm empty. Then let me fill you, the figure whispered. It rushed at him. It entered him. He dropped the tablet, fell to his knees, and lost his body to another driver. When Artie woke again, he was dangling in midair. The woods were pitch black. The only lights were fireflies. Fireflies everywhere, like dancing stars. He struggled and cried out, his yellow sneakers trying to find the ground. Shh said a voice. It will all be over soon. Panic rose. He felt invisible hands on his legs, on his arms, invisible fingers around his neck, reaching up the back of his shirt. He heard the sound of water running below, high and agitated, as if through a stony brook. The crescent moon swung out of the sky, falling into the water. Blood rushed into his cheeks. He realized he had been flipped upside down, he yelled and groped, flecking his own face with spit, helpless to drive away whatever was attacking him. He felt a sharp pain between his shoulder blades and air flew out of his lungs. A spray of blood hit his cheeks, hot and clinging. His hands found a sharp branch protruding from his body. It had speared him through his back and out through his chest. He tried to say help, but had no air to form the word. Blood poured up his body. No, it poured down. It only felt as if it were rising, climbing his neck, covering his face, gathering in his scalp. He reached for the ribbon of blood that fell from his crown into the trickle of moonlight below. The ribbon slipped through his fingers. It thinned, choked, became a tiny rivulet. His tanks were empty. Not even fumes. His engine began to sputter. The flow became a drip a maddening drip like the drip, drip, drip of his kitchen faucet, the drip his landlady hadn't fixed, the drip that kept him up at night. This drip would not be keeping him up. He would sleep very well this night, very well indeed. The fireflies slipped into shadow. A figure appeared, blue as gaslight, bony and toothless, a crone from a fairy tale. Thank you, my friends, she whispered. 
I am thankful for this good harvest. She neared, scrutinized him with manic intensity, and turned away, muttering to herself in a sing-song rhythm as she, too, vanished into the trees. A man may toil from sun to sun, but a woman's work is never done.